Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Hello, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gist of Freedom. And we're coming to you over www.blogtalkradio.com backslash the gist of freedom. That's G-I-S-T. I want to remind you that these programs are available and archived, available for free via iTunes. And you can do that at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. We're coming up on the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the historic March on Washington in 1963, which is the scene of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous speech, I Have a Dream. Tonight we're going to listen to excerpts of another speech made by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at Bennett, Bennett College in 1958. That speech has been labeled Finance Your Freedom. I would also remind you that uh, you might want to send a friend request to our executive producer, Leslie Gist, at Facebook. That's L E S L E Y. And um, on that title, uh, Leslie has labeled that speech, Finance Your Freedom. And you can read an excerpt of that speech, again, on her Facebook page. I would suggest that you send her a friend request at Facebook, Leslie, that's L-E-S-L-E-Y-G-I-S-T. Okay. And just so you have a flavor for those of you who are not on Facebook, I'm going to read some excerpts from it, uh, the speech that he gave at Bennett College in 1958. And I quote, Now we have just to face it. We kill each other too much. We have to face that. We have to face that. Our crime rates are still too high. We've got to face that. Excuse me, I had a technical difficulty here. And we've got to improve on that. We must face the fact that there are so many areas and there are so many things that we can do. And let us start now and sit down by the wayside, pull down the curtains of our lives and the shades, and look at ourselves and say, can we improve ourselves here? They say we want to be integrated because we want to marry their daughters. Well, we know that isn't true. We know that isn't true. The Negro's concern, basically, isn't to be the white man's brother-in-law. Let us improve our moral standards. We don't have to have the highest illegitimacy rate in every city. We don't need to do that. We don't have to have a Ph.D. or an M.A. degree or an A.D. degree. 
we don't have to have a lot of money to be good and honest and moral and upright. We have a dual responsibility. We must work to remove the basic cause of all of our problems, our economic insecurity, our cultural lag, our health lag, and all that. And at the same time, we must work to improve these effects that have come into being as a result of segregation. I've just read you an excerpt from that speech uh, delivered at Bennett College in 1958. And uh, we're going to play that speech for you now. We're going to hit the play button. Here we go. Good evening and blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Let us continue to give big money for the cause of freedom. Integration is not some lavish dish that will be passed out by the white man on a silver platter while the Negro merely punishes the appetite. <laughs> We've got to do more than that. We've got to sacrifice. And we're going to have to give some money. The days ahead are still days of difficulty. We still have a long, long way to go. And let us use our money wisely. We can't say any longer that we don't have it. I just mentioned a few minutes ago that we have an annual income now of almost $17 billion a year. We get almost everything else we want. We ride around in some of the biggest cars that have ever been let loose in the history. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not condemning this. I know how it is. I, I know that these things, we, we want to have some of the basic goods of life. We want to have some of the luxuries of life. But what I'm saying, let's maintain a sense of badness. We don't have time to spend a lot of money on whiskey and big parties and a lot of stuff, and we aren't giving money to the basic causes that confront us now. It will be an indictment on the Negro if it is revealed that we spend more money on frivolities than we spent on the cause of freedom and justice. And I've been in situations, I've seen us. In, in many of our social groups, our fraternal and our Masonic and our Elks and what have you, spending more money on frivolities than we spend on the cause of freedom and justice. I remember one year that a certain fraternity assembled with another fraternity and spent in one week $500,000 on whiskey. That's what the paper reported. Negroes spend more money on, in one week, just a handful in one week, than the whole Negro race spent that whole year for the NAACP and the United Negro College Fund. Now, that's tragic. That's tragic, my friend. We've got to get a sense of value. Now, you don't like some of these things I'm saying, 
You're not saying amen too much right there and here. But, uh, but I'm saying things that I think are basic for us. Things that are basic. Not only that, we must continue to develop wise, courageous, and sincere leadership. This is a need all over the South and all over the nation. We need leaders who are, who are sincere, leaders of integrity, leaders who are intelligent, leaders who avoid the extremes of hot-headedness and Uncle Tomism, leaders who somehow have the vision to see the issues and have the courage to stand there, Leaders not in love with money, but in love with humanity. Leaders not in love with publicity, but in love with justice. Oh, this is the great need of this hour. As I look out and as I look over our nation, God has given many of you talent. God has given many of you economic resources. He's given you educational resources. This is a challenge and the opportunity allows to use these things to furnish leadership for our nation in this hour. Let none of us become so high on the intellectual, the economic ladder, or any of these particular ladders that we become separated from the problems that the masses of people confront. Let us discover that we will never get into the promised land until all of us get that together. Before Malcolm X, before Martin Luther King Jr., Vernon Johns took a step on the long road to freedom. Pastor Johns was one of the earliest voices of the civil rights. In 1948, Johns served as the outspoken spiritual leader of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And since that the racial injustices that pervaded the South, he was determined to fight for equality for all African Americans. His refusal to accept segregation incited anger amongst the local law enforcement and caused his family to fear for their lives. Johns held strong to his beliefs and encouraged his congregation to join him, but the church council deemed him a troublemaker and he was voted out as pastor only to be replaced by future civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. God never said Thou shalt not kill unless you are a police officer. He most certainly did not say, Thou shalt not kill unless you are white. Last week, a white man was fined for shooting a rabbit out of season. But it's safe to murder Negroes. A rabbit is better off than a Negro because in Alabama, Niggers are always in season. And I'll tell you why it's safe to murder Negroes. Because Negroes stand by and let it happen. When the Klan burns a cross, it is a message. The next step will be a lynching. But as I watched the cross burning outside the church last night, it occurred to me that the crucifixion was just that, a lynching. And isn't it ironic that everything we worship 
was made possible by a lynching. Because at that ultimate moment of death, Jesus spoke the words that transformed a lynching into a crucifixion that made Jesus not a condemner, but a redeemer. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But the white policemen who are free day after day to murder Negroes know what they do. And you know what you do when you stand by and watch your brothers and sisters being lynched. It is as if you stood by while Christ was being crucified. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. That's what you are. Because you sit here every Sunday morning praising Jesus while you know that every Saturday night your brothers and sisters are being murdered and you say nothing, you do nothing. Is it fear? Are you afraid? If you speak too loudly or protest too strongly, you'll be killed like Brother Hill. You well may be. He who takes not this cross and follows me is not worthy of me. Are you worthy of Jesus Christ? Or are you only worthy of the state of Alabama? One of the most militant opponents, a heroic fighter against discrimination, and the person who had more to do with originating and carrying out a crusade against lynching than any other was Ida May Wells. At the early age of 19, as editor of the Memphis Free Press, she began her campaign against lynching. Threatened by white supremacists if she continued her exposure of lynchings, she defied them but took care always to carry two pistols for protection. In 1892, she published an article revealing that the lynching of three successful Negro grocers was the work of their white competitors. Her press was destroyed, and she would have been lynched had she not been in Philadelphia covering a convention. Miss Wells went to Chicago, where she joined the Chicago Conservator, and then lectured throughout the northern part of the United States and in Europe on lynching. She was among the first to point out the falsity of the charge of rape as explaining lynching. In 1894, she published A Red Record, the first book to document the crime of lynching. A year later, she married Ferdinand Lee Barnett of Chicago, lawyer and later first Negro assistant state's attorney in Illinois. In 1898, she was the spokesman for a delegation of women and congressmen to President McKinley to protest the lynching of a Negro postmaster. An active member of the Niagara Movement, she was also one of the signers of the call for the National Negro Conference in 1909, and later a founder of the NAACP. Mrs. Wells Barnett delivered the following address at the 1909 conference. The lynching record of a quarter of a century merits the thoughtful study of the American people. It presents three salient facts. First, 
lynching is color line murder. Second, crimes against women is the excuse, not the cause. Third, it is a national crime and requires a national remedy. Proof that lynching follows the color line is to be found in the statistics which have been kept for the past 25 years. During the few years preceding this period and while frontier lynch law existed, the executions showed a majority of white victims. Later, however, as law courts and authorized judiciary extended into the far west, lynch law rapidly abated and its white victims became few and far between. Just as the lynch law regime came to a close in the West, a new mob movement started in the South. This was wholly political, its purpose being to suppress the colored vote by intimidation and murder. Thousands of assassins banded together under the name of Ku Klux Klans, Midnight Raiders, Knights of the Golden Circle, etc., etc., and spread a reign of terror by beating, shooting, and killing colored people by the thousands. In a few years, the purpose was accomplished, and the black vote was suppressed. But mob murder continued. From 1882, in which year 52 were lynched, down to the present, lynching has been along the color line. Mob murder increased yearly until in 1892 more than 200 victims were lynched and statistics show that 3,284 men, women, and children have been put to death in this quarter of a century. During the last 10 years from 1899 to 1908 inclusive, the number lynched was 959. Of this number, 102 were white, while the colored victims numbered 857. No other nation, civilized or savage, burns its criminals. Only under the stars and stripes is the human holocaust possible. 28 human beings burned at the stake one of them a woman and two of them children, is the awful indictment against American civilization, the gruesome tribute which the nation pays to the color line. Why is mob murder permitted by a Christian nation? What is the cause of this awful slaughter? The question is answered almost daily, always the same shameless falsehood that Negroes are lynched to protect womanhood. Standing before a Chattaqua assemblage, John Temple Graves, at once champion of lynching and apologist for lynchers, said, The mob stands today as the most potential bulwark between the woman of the South and such a carnival of take. The mob today stands as the most potential bulwark between the women of the South and such a carnival of crime as would infuriate the world and precipitate the annihilation of the Negro race. This is the never-varying answer of lynchers and their apologists. All know that this is untrue. The cowardly lyncher revels in murder, then seeks to shield himself from public execration by claiming devotion to women. But truth is mighty, and the lynching record discloses the hypocrisy of the lyncher as well as his crime. The Springfield, Illinois mob rioted for two days. The militia of the entire state was called out. Two men were lynched, hundreds of people driven from their homes, all because a white woman said a Negro assaulted her. A mad mob went to the jail, 
tried to lynch the victim of her charge, and not being able to find him, proceeded to pillage and burn the town and to lynch two innocent men. Later, after the police had found that the woman's charge was false, she published a retraction. The indictment was dismissed and the intended victim discharged. But the lynched victims were dead. Hundreds were homeless and Illinois was disgraced. As a final and complete refutation of the charge that lynching is occasioned by crimes against women, a partial record of lynching is cited. 285 persons were lynched for causes as follows. Unknown cause, 92. No cause, 10. Race prejudice, 49. Miscegenation, 7. Informing, 12. Making threats, 11. Keeping saloon, 3. Practicing fraud, 5. Practicing voodooism, 2. Bad reputation, 8. Unpopularity, 3. Mistaken identity, 5. Using improper language three, violation of contract one, writing insulting letter two, eloping two, poisoning horse one, poisoning well two, by white caps nine, vigilantes fourteen, Indians one, moonshining one, refusing evidence two, political causes five, disputing one, disobeying quarantine regulations two, slapping a child one, turning state's evidence three, protecting a negro one, to prevent giving evidence one, knowledge of larceny one, writing letter to white woman one, asking white woman to marry one, Jilting girl, one. Having smallpox, one. Concealing criminal, two. Threatening political exposure, one. Self-defense, six. Cruelty, one. Insulting language to women, five. Quarreling with white men, two. Colonizing Negroes, one. Throwing stones, one. Quarreling, one. Gambling, one. Is there a remedy, or will the nation confess that it cannot protect its protectors at home as well as abroad? Various remedies have been suggested to abolish the lynching infamy, but year after year, the butchery of men, women, and children continues in spite of plea and protest. Education is suggested as a preventative, but it is as grave a crime to murder an ignorant man as it is a scholar. True, few educated men have been lynched, but the hue and cry once started stops at no bounds, as was clearly shown by the lynchings in Atlanta and in Springfield, Illinois. Agitation, though helpful, will not alone stop the crime. Year after year, statistics are published, meetings are held, resolutions are adopted, and yet lynchings go on. Public sentiment does measurably decrease the sway of mob law, but the irresponsible, bloodthirsty criminals who swept through the streets of Springfield, beating an inoffensive, law-abiding citizen to death in one part of the town, and in another, torturing and shooting to death a man who for three score years had made a reputation for honesty, integrity, and sobriety, had raised a family, and had accumulated property, were not deterred from their heinous crimes by either education or agitation. The only certain remedy is an appeal to law. Lawbreakers must be made to know that human life is sacred and that every citizen of this country is first a citizen of the United States and secondly a citizen of the state in which he belongs. This nation must assert itself and defend its federal citizenship at home as well as abroad. The strong men of the government must reach across state lines whenever unbridled lawlessness defies state laws and must give to the individual citizen under the stars and stripes the same measure of protection which it gives to him when he travels in foreign lands. Federal protection of American citizenship is the remedy for lynching. Foreigners are rarely lynched in America. If by mistake one is lynched, the national government quickly pays the damages. 
The recent agitation in California against the Japanese compelled this nation to recognize that federal power must yet assert itself to protect the nation from the treason of sovereign states. Thousands of American citizens have been put to death, and no president has yet raised his hand in effective protest. But a simple insult to a native of Japan was quite sufficient to stir the government at Washington to prevent the threatened wrong. If the government has power to protect a foreigner from insult, certainly it has the power to save a citizen's life. The practical remedy has been more than once suggested in Congress. Senator Gallinger of New Hampshire, in a resolution introduced in Congress, called for an investigation with the view of ascertaining whether there is a remedy for lynching which Congress may apply. The Senate committee has under consideration a bill drawn by A.E. Pillsbury, formerly Attorney General of Massachusetts, providing for federal prosecution of lynchers in cases where the state fails to protect citizens or foreigners. Both of these resolutions indicate that the attention of the nation has been called to this phase of the lynching question. As a final word, it would be a beginning in the right direction if this conference could see its way clear to establish a bureau for the investigation and publication of the details of every lynching so that the public could know that an influential body of citizens has made it a duty to give the widest publicity to the facts in each case that it will make an effort to secure expressions of opinion all over the country against lynching for the sake of the country's fair name, and lastly, but by no means least, to try to influence the daily papers of this country to refuse to become accessories to mobs either before or after the fact. Several of the greatest riots and the most brutal burnt offerings of the mobs have been suggested and incited by the daily papers of the offending community. If the newspaper which suggests lynching in its accounts of an alleged crime could be held legally as well as morally responsible for reporting that threats of lynching were heard, or it is feared that if the guilty one is caught, he will be lynched, or there were cries of lynch him, and the only reason the threat was not carried out was because no leader appeared. A long step toward a remedy will have been taken. In a multitude of counsel, there is wisdom. Upon the grave question presented by the slaughter of innocent men, women, and children, there should be an honest, courageous conference of patriotic, law-abiding citizens anxious to punish crime promptly, impartially, and by due process of law, also to make life, liberty, and property secure against mob rule. Time was when lynching appeared to be sectional, but now it is national, a blight upon our nation, mocking our laws and disgracing our Christianity. With malice toward none, but with charity for all, let us undertake the work of making the law of the land effective and supreme upon every foot of American soil, a shield to the innocent and to the guilty punished. Thank you. Thank you so much for that incredibly um, warm welcome and kind introduction. I am delighted to be here, absolutely thrilled to be here returning to my alma mater and to join with you in this wonderful celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and his legacy. These types of gatherings are always important, but today is truly historic. Today, on this very day, our nation's first black president, Barack Obama, was sworn in for his second term.
And, yep. And equally remarkable, this year marks the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. 50 years. Yes, 50 years have passed since King's voice soared over the Washington monuments declaring his dream. I have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. And watching President Obama's inaugural address today, I could hear echoes of King's speech and his dream. I have a dream. And it left me wondering, um, as I clicked off the television, are all of us, truly all of us, each and every one of us, welcome to share in this dream, the same dream that Dr. King dreamed? Most Americans by now um, can recite some portion of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. It's an extraordinary and very familiar speech. I've grown accustomed to hearing clips from the speech played over and over again on the radio every January, recycled clips, the very same clips over and over again. In the years since Dr. King's death, a vast new system of racial and social control has emerged from the ashes of slavery and Jim Crow, a system of mass incarceration that no doubt would have Dr. King turning in his grave today. The mass incarceration of poor people of color in the United States has emerged as a new caste-like system, one that shuttles our youth from decrepit, underfunded schools to brand-new, high-tech prisons. It is a system that locks poor people, overwhelmingly poor folks of color, into a permanent second-class status, nearly as effectively as earlier systems of control once did. It is, in my view, the moral equivalent of Jim Crow. Now, I am always eager to admit that there was a time when I rejected this kind of talk, that there was a time when I rejected comparisons between mass incarceration and slavery, mass incarceration and Jim Crow, believing that those kinds of claims and comparisons were exaggerations or distortions, even hyperbole. In fact, there was a time when I thought that people who made those kinds of claims and those kinds of comparisons were actually doing more harm than good to efforts to reform our criminal justice system and achieve greater racial equality in the United States. But I had a series of experiences that began what I call my awakening. I began to awaken to a racial reality that is just so obvious to me now that what seems odd in retrospect is that I, someone who cared about social justice, that I could have been blind to it for so long. As I write in the introduction to my book, what has changed since the collapse of Jim Crow has less to do with the basic structure of our society than the language we use to justify it. In the era of colorblindness, it is no longer socially permissible to use race explicitly as a justification for discrimination, exclusion, and social contempt. So we don't. Rather than rely on race, we use our criminal justice system to label people of color criminals and then engage in all the practices that we supposedly left behind. 
Today, it is perfectly legal to discriminate against criminals in nearly all the ways in which it was once legal to discriminate against African Americans. Once you're labeled a felon, the old forms of discrimination, employment discrimination, housing discrimination, denial of the right to vote, exclusion from jury service, suddenly legal. As a criminal, you have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of Jim Crow. We have not ended racial caste in America, we have merely redesigned it. Well, here are a few of the facts that I uncovered in the course of my work and research that I describe in the book. More African American adults are under correctional control today, in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. As of 2004, more black men were disenfranchised than in 1870, the year the 15th Amendment was ratified, prohibiting laws that explicitly deny the right to vote on the basis of race. Now, of course, during the Jim Crow era, poll taxes and literacy tests operated to keep black folks from the polls. Well, today, felon disenfranchisement laws accomplish in many states what poll taxes and literacy tests ultimately could not. Now, this isn't a phenomenon that affects some small segment of the African-American community. No, to the contrary. In many major urban areas today, more than half of working-age African-American men now have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. In cities like Chicago, Baltimore, Philadelphia, I don't know the stats for Nashville, but in major urban areas today, so many of them, the stats are far, far worse. In fact, in Chicago, it was reported that if you take into account prisoners, if you actually count them as people, and, you know, prisoners are excluded from poverty statistics. They're excluded from unemployment data, you know, thus masking the severity of racial inequality in the United States. But if you actually count prisoners as people in the Chicago area, nearly 80% of working-age African-American men now have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. These men are part of a growing undercast not class, caste, a group of people defined largely by race, relegated to a permanent second-class status by law. Now, I find that when I tell people that I now believe that mass incarceration is like a new Jim Crow, a new caste system, people typically react with shock disbelief. They say, well, how can you say that? How can you say that? Just, just look at Barack Obama. You know, just look at Oprah Winfrey. Just look at Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice. You know. But I think it's important to keep in mind that no caste system in the United States has ever governed all African Americans. There have always been free blacks and extraordinary black success stories, even during slavery and Jim Crow. I mean, during slavery, there were some black slave owners. Not many, but there were some. And during Jim Crow, there were some black lawyers and black doctors. Not many, but there were some. Now, the extraordinary nature of individual black achievement in formerly white domains 
today certainly does suggest that the old Jim Crow is dead, but it doesn't necessarily mean the end of racial caste. If history is any guide, it may have just taken a different form. I think any honest observer of American racial history has to acknowledge that the rules and reasons the legal system employs for enforcing status relations of any kind, they evolve and they change as they're challenged. In the first chapter of the book, I describe the cyclical rebirths of caste in America. Since our nation's founding, African Americans have repeatedly been controlled through institutions like you know, slavery and Jim Crow, which appear to die, but then are reborn in new form tailored to the needs and constraints of the time. For example, following slavery, following the Civil War, a new system was born that replaced slavery, known as convict leasing. Many people aren't aware that after the Civil War, black men were arrested in mass. It was our nation's first prison boom. They were arrested, sent to prison, and they were arrested for extremely minor crimes like loitering and vagrancy, arrested, sent to prison, and then leased to plantations. Sometimes the very plantations they had been freed from or their family members had been freed from. Sometimes they were leased to corporations. Leased to plantations. And the idea was that they were supposed to earn their freedom, but the catch was that they could never earn enough to pay back the plantation owner, you know, the cost of their food, clothing, and shelter to the plantation owner's satisfaction. And so they were effectively re-enslaved, sometimes for the rest of their lives. Douglas Blackman has written an excellent book on the subject of convict leasing entitled Slavery by Another Name. Well, today I believe that the criminal justice system has been used once again in a manner that effectively recreates caste in America. Now, I know there's more than one person right now who's thinking, okay, what is she talking about? Our criminal justice system isn't a system of racial control, it's a system of crime control. And if black folks would just stop running around committing so many crimes, they wouldn't have to worry about being locked up and then stripped of their basic civil and human rights. But therein lies the greatest myth about the system of mass incarceration, namely that it's been driven by crime and crime rates. It's just not true. It's not true. Our prison population has more than quintupled. It quintupled within the space of just 30 years. We went from a prison population of about 300,000 to now over 2 million. We now have the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of even highly repressive regimes like Russia or China or Iran. But again, this cannot be explained simply by crime or crime rates. During that 30-year period of time when our prison population quintupled, crime rates fluctuated. They went up, went down, went back up again, went down again, went back up, down. Today, as bad as crime rates are nationally, you know, crime rates are actually at historical lows. But incarceration rates have consistently soared. Most criminologists and sociologists today will acknowledge that crime rates and incarceration rates in the United States have moved independently of one another. Incarceration rates, especially black incarceration rates, have soared regardless of whether crime is going up or going down in any given community or the nation as a whole. So what explains this sudden explosion 
and imprisonment, the birth of a penal system unprecedented in world history, if not crime or crime rates? Well, the answer is the war on drugs and the get tough movement, the wave of punitiveness that washed over the United States. Drug convictions alone, just drug convictions, accounted for about two-thirds of the increase in the federal prison system and more than half of the increase in the state prison system between 1985 and 2000, the period of our prison system's most dramatic expansion. Drug convictions have increased more than 1,000% since the drug war began. I mean, to get a sense of how large a contribution the drug war has made to mass incarceration, consider this. There are more people in prisons and jails today just for drug offenses than were incarcerated for all reasons in 1980. Now, most Americans violate drug laws in their lifetime. They do. You don't have to raise your hand. It's been shown. But the enemy in this war... The enemy in this war has been racially defined. Not by accident. This drug war has been waged almost exclusively in poor communities of color, even though studies have consistently shown now for decades that contrary to popular belief, people of color are no more likely to use or sell illegal drugs than whites. Or sell. Now that defies our basic racial stereotypes about who a drug dealer is. You know, you picture in your mind a drug dealer, and if you're like most Americans, you see some black kid stand on the street corner with his pants sagging down. And plenty of drug dealing happens in the hood, but it happens everywhere else in America as well. A white kid living in rural Tennessee doesn't drive to the hood to get his marijuana or his meth or his cocaine. No. He gets it most likely from someone of his own race down the road. Drug dealing happens in all communities of all colors, including college campuses. I remember, I went here. <laughs> it happens here, too. It happens in communities of all colors. But those who do time for drug crime are overwhelmingly black and brown. In some states, 80 to 90% of all drug offenders sent to prison have been one race, African American. Now, I find that very often when people see this data, they say, oh, you know, that's a shame, that's a shame, you know, but we need a war on them, those people. We need to get tough on them because that's where the violent offenders, that's where the drug kingpins are. We need to get tough on them. But what many people don't realize is this drug war has never been focused primarily on rooting out the violent offenders or drug kingpins just not true. Federal funding in this war has flowed to those state and local law enforcement agencies that boost the sheer numbers of drug arrests. It's been a numbers game. Law enforcement agencies have been awarded in cash for the sheer numbers of people swept into the system for drug offenses, which helps to explain why police officers so often go out looking for the so-called low-hanging fruit, stopping, frisking, searching as many people as possible in an effort to boost their numbers, to get their numbers up. And to make matters worse, federal drug forfeiture laws allow state and local law enforcement agencies to keep for their own use up to 80% of the cash, cars, homes, 
seized from suspected drug offenders. You don't have to be convicted, just suspected. Law enforcement can take your cash off of you, take your car, sell it. Proceeds go to the department. Thus giving law enforcement a direct monetary interest, not in ending drug abuse or drug addiction or even drug-related crime, but in the longevity of this war itself. And the results are predictable. The overwhelming majority of people swept in to the criminal justice system for drug offenses have been arrested for relatively minor, nonviolent drug offenses. In 2005, for example, four out of five drug arrests were for simple possession. Only one out of five were for sales. Most people in state prison for drug offenses today have no history of violence or even significant selling activity. And in the 1990s, the period of the greatest escalation of the drug war, nearly 80% of the increase in drug arrests were for marijuana possession, a drug that has been shown to be less harmful, less addictive than alcohol or tobacco, and at least, if not more prevalent, in middle-class white communities and on college campuses as it is in the hood but by waging this drug war almost exclusively in the poorest communities, communities defined by race and class, we have created a vast new racial undercast in an astonishingly short period of time. Millions of people, tens of millions of people cycling in and out of our criminal justice system today. Now where is the U.S. Supreme Court in all of this? Where is the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, far from vigilantly defending the rights of accused, rights of racial minorities, the U.S. Supreme Court has been busy in recent years eviscerating Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable searches and seizures, allowing the police the authority to stop, frisk, search anyone, anywhere without a shred of evidence of reasonable suspicion or probable cause as long as they get consent. And what is consent? When a police officer walks up to a young man with his hand on his gun and says, son, put your arms up in the air, will you, so I can search you, see if you got anything on you? Kid says, uh-huh. That's consent. And he just waived his Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable searches and seizures. Not a shred of evidence is necessary for that encounter. And these encounters aren't isolated. They happen over and over again. The New York City Police Department reported that in one year alone, just one year, its police officers in one year stopped and frisked 600,000 people. One year alone. Overwhelmingly black and brown men. But the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that we cannot challenge these racial disparities in a court of law. In a series of cases beginning with McCleskey versus Kemp and Armstrong versus the United States, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that it doesn't matter how overwhelming your statistical evidence of discrimination might be. It doesn't matter how severe the racial disparities are. Unless you can offer proof of conscious intentional bias, tantamount to an admission by an officer, you can't even state a claim for race discrimination in our criminal justice system today. So many of the racial profiling cases that I was bringing a decade ago can't even be filed in a court of law today. 
The U.S. Supreme Court has closed the courthouse doors to claims of racial bias at every stage of the criminal justice process, from stops and searches to plea bargaining and sentencing. Unless you have proof of conscious intentional bias tantamount to an admission, you can't even state a claim. Now, of course, that is precisely the kind of evidence that's nearly impossible to come by in this so-called era of color blindness when law enforcement, like the rest of us, know better than to state their racial biases out loud. But those discretionary bias stereotype decisions play out over and over again hundreds of thousands of times in just one city, adding up to enormous racial disparities that the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled we cannot even challenge in a court of law. In this way, the U.S. Supreme Court has immunized the system of mass incarceration from judicial scrutiny for racial bias, much in the same way that the U.S. Supreme Court once rallied to defend slavery and Jim Crow in their day. But of course, just being swept into the system with little hope of being able to challenge the bias or the tactics that were used to get you in the door is just the beginning of your odyssey because once you're branded a criminal or a felon, you're ushered into a parallel social universe in which the basic civil and human rights that the rest of us may take for granted no longer apply to you. You may be denied the right to vote for a period of years or the rest of your life, depending on the state you're in. You're deemed ineligible for jury service for the rest of your life. Employment discrimination is now legal against you. For the rest of your life, you've got to check that box on employment applications asking that dreaded question, have you ever been convicted of a felony? It doesn't matter if that felony happened a few weeks ago, a few months ago, or 45 years ago. The rest of your life, checking that box, knowing full well the odds are sky high that application is going straight to the trash. Many people say, oh, come on, don't make excuses for people. I mean, it's hard when you get out of prison, but if you try, you really try to find a job, you could do it. You've just got to try. I mean, you could get a job at McDonald's or something. Getting a job at McDonald's is no easy feat if you have a felony record. People say, well, maybe they could be entrepreneurs or start their own businesses. I say, well, when you get out of prison, you don't have a lot of money to invest, but even if you did, hundreds of professional licenses are off limits to people branded criminals. In fact, in my state in Ohio, you can't even get a license to be a barber once you've been convicted of a felony. What are you expected to do? Housing discrimination, legal, perfectly routine against you if you have a criminal record, public housing projects, as well as private landlords, free to discriminate against you and routinely do. Public benefits may be denied to you, perfectly legal. In fact, under federal law, you may be denied food stamps. The federal law authorizing the denial of food stamps to people convicted of drug felonies. Now, fortunately, many states have now opted out of the federal ban on food stamps for people convicted of drug offenses, but it remains the case that thousands of people can't even get food stamps, can't even get food, because they were once caught with drugs. What do we expect people to do? You're released from prison, tossed on the street, can't get a job. Housing is off limits to you. You may not even qualify for food, food stamps to survive. Well, apparently what we expect people to do is to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars in fees, fines, court costs, accumulated back child support, which continues to accrue while you're in prison. And in a growing number of states, you're actually expected to pay back the cost of your imprisonment. 
And paying back all these fees, fines, and court costs may be a condition of your probation or parole. And then get this. If you're one of the lucky few, the very few, who manages to get a job right out of prison, up to 100% of your wages can be garnished. 100%. To pay back all those fees, fines, court costs, accumulated back child support. What do we expect folks to do? I think the better question is, when you take a step back and view the system as a whole, what does it seem designed to do? It seems designed, in my view, to send folks right back to prison, which is what, in fact, happens the vast majority of the time. About 70% of people released from prison return within a few years, and the majority of those who return in some states do so in a matter of months because the challenges associated with mere survival on the outside are so immense. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, my own view is that nothing short of a major social movement has any hope for ending mass incarceration and inspiring a recommitment to Dr. King's dream. Now, if you doubt that such a movement is necessary, if you think surely, surely something less than a full-blown movement will do, consider this. If we were to return to the rates of incarceration we had in the 1970s or the early 1980s before the war on drugs and the Get Tough movement really kicked off, we would have to release four out of five people who are in prison today. Four out of five. More than a million people employed by the criminal justice system would lose their jobs. Most new private, most new private and public prisons have been constructed in predominantly white rural communities, communities that are often quite vulnerable economically, and many of these communities have been sold on prisons as an answer to their economic woes, providing jobs, much-needed jobs for these communities. And quite often, you know, those who are trying to build prisons offer communities far more benefits than they actually deliver. But nonetheless, you have whole communities now that have come to believe that they depend on prisons. For their survival, those prisons across America would have to close down. Private prison companies now listed on the New York Stock Exchange and doing quite well in a time of economic recession, those, those companies would be forced to go belly up, go bankrupt. This system is now so deeply rooted in our social, political, and economic structure, it's not going to just fade away. It's not going to just downsize out of sight without a major upheaval a fairly radical shift in our public consciousness. Now, I know that there are many people today who will tell me that, oh, you know, there is no hope of ending mass incarceration in America. Just as many people in the South were resigned to Jim Crow and would say, yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame, but that's just the way that it is. I find that so many people today find the millions cycling in and out of our prisons and jails is just an unfortunate but inalterable fact of American life. Well, I am certain that Dr. King would not be so easily deterred. So I believe that if we are going to honor Dr. King, 
truly honor him, try to catch up with him, we have got to be willing to pick up where he left off and do the hard work of movement building on behalf of poor people of all colors. We must. In 1968, Dr. King told advocates that the time had come to transition from a civil rights movement to a human rights movement. Meaningful equality could not be achieved through civil rights alone. Basic human rights must be honored. The right to work, the right to housing, the right to quality education. Without basic human rights, he said, civil rights are an empty promise. So in honor of Dr. King and all those who labored to end the old Jim Crow, I will hope we will commit ourselves to building a human rights movement to end mass incarceration, a movement for education, not incarceration, for jobs, not jails, a movement to end all these forms of legal discrimination against people released from prison, discrimination that denies them basic human rights to work, to shelter, to food. Now, what must we do to begin this movement? To build upon the work that already has been done? Well, first, we've got to be willing to tell the truth, the whole truth. We have got to be willing to admit out loud that we as a nation have managed to recreate a caste-like system in this country. And we've got to be willing to tell this truth in our schools, in our places of worship. We've got to be willing to tell this truth inside prisons and in reentry centers. We've got to be willing to tell this truth so that a great awakening can begin. Unlike the old Jim Crow, there are no signs posted anywhere alerting you to the existence of this new caste-like system. Back then, there were whites-only signs leaving no doubt about the caste system that was firmly in place. But today, prisons are out of sight, out of mind. The people who cycle in and out of prisons typically cycle in and out of segregated communities far away from the mainstream middle class, cycling in and out, outside anyone's conscious awareness among all those who have jobs, live in decent neighborhoods, and zoom around on freeways past the literal and virtual prisons in which they live. So if we are to challenge this system of mass incarceration, build a human rights movement that will ultimately end it, we have got to be willing to speak uncomfortable and inconvenient truths, to make visible what has been hidden in plain sight for far too long. We've got to be willing to pull back the curtain and dispel the myths and rationalizations that sustained this system for far too long. But of course, just a lot of talk isn't going to be enough. It's necessary, but it's not going to be enough. We've also got to be willing to get to work. In my view, that means we have got to be willing to build an underground railroad for people released from prison. An underground railroad helping people to shuttle from prison, people who are trying to make a genuine break for real freedom, help people find jobs, places of work, 
find shelter, food, get a roof over their head. We need an army of people who are willing to say, no, you are not forgotten. We are willing to open our arms, we're willing to open our hearts to you and actually welcome you home. And if you are willing to work for real freedom, we are willing to march right there with you. We've got to create safe places for people returning home from prison and their family members who are struggling to survive in this era of mass incarceration. How do we create safe places? Well, I think first, we've got to be willing to admit our own criminality out loud. Our own criminality. Because the reality is, is that we've all made mistakes. Some big, perhaps, some small. We've all made mistakes. We're all sinners. We've all done wrong in our lives. And all of us are criminals. Adults in this room, you've broken the law at some point in your life. Maybe you drank underage or experimented with drugs, or if the worst thing you've ever done in your whole life is speed 10 miles over the speed limit on the freeway, you've put yourself and others at more risk of harm than someone smoking marijuana in the privacy of their living room. That is the truth. That's the truth. But there are people in the United States today serving life sentences for first-time drug offenses. Life sentences. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld life sentences for first-time drug offenders against an Eighth Amendment challenge that such a sentence was cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth Amendment. The U.S. Supreme Court said, no, it's not cruel and unusual to sentence a young man to life in prison for a first-time drug offense, even though virtually no other country in the world does such a thing. We've got to stop this idea that the criminals are them, not us. And say, there but for the grace of God go I, but for my privilege. But for my privilege of whatever kind, racial privilege or class privilege, or being lucky enough just not to get caught because of my privilege. I am not cycling in and out along with them. After all, President Barack Obama has admitted to more than a little bit of drug use in his youth. He's admitted to using marijuana and cocaine. And if Obama had not been raised by white grandparents in Hawaii, and if he hadn't done most of his drug use on predominantly white college campuses and universities, if he had been raised in the hood, the odds are very good. He would have been stopped, he would have been frisked, he would have been searched, he would have been caught. And far, far, far from being president of the United States today, he might not even have the right to vote depending on what state he lives in. So we have got to recognize that what this movement is about is saving our young people, saving all of us. This is about building a movement on behalf of all of us. All of us have made mistakes, done wrong in our lives, but only some of us, some of us are forced to pay for those mistakes for the rest of our lives. But just building an underground railroad isn't going to be enough either. 
Because in the days of slavery, you know, it wasn't enough to just shuttle a few to freedom one by one, opening hearts, opening homes one by one. You had to be willing to work for abolition. Well, today we have got to be willing to work for the abolition of this system of mass incarceration as a whole. We do. And that means ending the war on drugs once and for all. Yes. We have now spent... We have spent $1 trillion waging the drug war since it began. A trillion dollars just on the war on drugs. We're constantly being told we don't have enough money to pay our teachers. We don't have enough money for small class sizes. We don't have enough money for jobs programs for our youth in the summertime. We don't have enough money for this and for that. But apparently we had a trillion dollars to blow. And we spent it building prisons and jails and monitoring millions as they cycled in and out. We spent a trillion dollars, arrested more than 40 million people in the drug war, and yet rates of drug addiction and drug abuse remain largely unchanged. Illegal drugs are as widely available and cheaper than they were when the drug war began. It's time to end the madness and shift to a public health model for dealing with drug addiction and drug abuse and stop wasting millions of dollars and lives. And we've also got to end all these forms of legal discrimination against people released from prison. These forms of discrimination that deny them basic human rights, human rights to work, to shelter, to food, to survive. And last but not least, we've got to shift from a purely punitive approach to dealing with violence and violent crime in our communities to a more rehabilitative and restorative approach, one that takes seriously the interests of the victim, the offender, and the community as a whole. We have got a lot of work to do. And if it seems like too much, if it seems like it can't possibly be done, keep in mind this. All of these rules, laws, policies, practices that comprise this system of mass incarceration, they all rest upon one core belief. And it's the same core belief that sustained Jim Crow. It's the belief that some of us, some of us are not worthy of genuine care, compassion, or concern. And when we effectively challenge that core belief, this whole system begins to fall like dominoes. A multiracial, multi-ethnic human rights movement must be born, one rooted in the recognition of the dignity and humanity of all people. And it's got to be multiracial and multi-ethnic. Although this war on drugs may have been born with black folks in mind, it is a war that has destroyed the lives of people in communities of all colors. And the same divisive, get-tough politics that gave birth to mass incarceration and the, the drug war, those same kinds of politics are birthing another prison-building boom. This one aimed at suspected illegal immigrants. So we have got to be willing to connect the dots and build a multiracial, multi-ethnic movement on behalf of all of us. But before this movement can truly get underway, a great awakening is required. We have got to awaken from this colorblind slumber we've been in 
to the realities of race in America. And we've got to be willing to embrace those labeled criminals. Not necessarily all their behavior, but them, their humanness. For it is the refusal and failure to recognize the dignity and humanity of all people that has been the sturdy foundation for every caste system that has ever existed in the United States or anywhere else in the world. It's our task, I firmly believe, to end not just mass incarceration, not just the war on drugs, but to end this history and cycle of caste in America. Then and only then can we say with pride that we are truly catching up to King. Thank you so much for having me tonight. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was quite a bit that we had uh, presented to you this evening. Started out with Dr. King's speech in 1958 at Bennett College. That was followed by Ida B. Wells. No, followed first by uh, Reverend Vernon Johns, who was the minister of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And uh, the congregation there thought he was a little bit too radical. They ousted him and replaced him with a young minister by the name of Martin Luther King, Jr. Then the next reading we heard was Ida B. Wells uh, talking about the lynchings and her efforts to um, have lynching laws imposed and the problems with uh, getting those lynching laws imposed. And then we finished up with Michelle Alexander uh, commemorating Martin Luther King's birthday with a presentation at Vanderbilt University in 2013. And as you probably gathered from that presentation, she is the author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. Uh, if you'd like to call in with a comment, you can do that at 347-324-5552. And uh, as I say, quite a bit of uh, information put out there, uh, starting with uh, Dr. King at uh, Bennett, Bennett College, understanding that civil rights was not going to be presented on a silver platter. Also, getting back to Vernon Johns, there was a movie about Vernon Johns, and that excerpt that we heard was uh, James Earl Jones, and that was from the movie. Um, the Vernon Johns story, and that can be purchased by way of Amazon. Again, it's called the Vernon Johns story. That was new information for me. I did not understand that transition there what was going on at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and uh, as early as 1948, uh, Reverend Johns had been involved in civil rights and uh, getting uh, black folks' rights to vote, et cetera, established. And he was considered too radical, isn't that something? But he made room there, or at least uh, the deacon board did, by... Uh, bringing in Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, and uh, 
Vernon Johns kind of destroyed uh, that notion that ministers were awful times, um, which he proved, and furthermore, uh, Dr. King proved um, by putting themselves at the forefront of the movement for equal rights. And uh, we go all the way back in terms of the history of ministers to go all the way back to Nat Turner. 1831, I believe it was, uh, started an insurrection in Virginia. Well, Nat Turner was a minister. On through... um, Uh, the Civil War, or in prior to the Civil War, the Underground Railroad, that Miss Michelle Alexander said we need to reinstitute, uh, was started by a coalition of ministers uh, and churches involved um, after the Civil War. Again, it was ministers through the churches and whatnot that launched movements and uh, centers to help individuals coming out of the Civil War who had been stranded, who were without employment, who were without shelter, without clothes, without food, etc. Here again, that movement was led by ministers. So we have seen that um, throughout the history of the struggle, of African-American people in this country. Leadership has often come from ministers, men of the cloth, and uh, should do away with that notion of uh, being Uncle Tom's. They were truth speakers, as Martin Luther King was that day at Bennett College when he admonished uh, African-Americans about the amount of money they spent on whiskeys and that they were not using their money very wisely. There was a great need to use the resources uh, wisely. Uh, he emphasized the need for leadership in the black community. Sound, sane leadership, sober leadership. leadership that would be at the forefront of the movement towards equality in this country. Again, the civil rights is not going to be handed to us on a silver platter. We're going to have to make some sacrifices. It's talking about money being spent on drugs today. I mean, alcohol, whiskey, uh, back in the day. Um, Today it would be drugs. Uh, Also recall that uh, Malcolm X went to the United Nations on behalf of human rights. Martin Luther King at that time was also making a transition from civil rights to human rights. His last march was for poor people, poor people's campaign, garbage workers, the proletariat, if you will. 
went into Memphis, Tennessee. Garbage strike. Led to his death on April the 4th, 1968. Where were you? I was at 59th and Prospect here in Kansas City. Stopped at a red light when I got the news. Where were you? If you go back to Memphis, uh, we talk about civil rights to human rights. The men in that strike were wearing placards. Those placards read, I am a man. M-A-N. So Muddy Waters spelled it. M-A-N. I am a man. That's who Martin Luther King gave his life defending and helping those men become men, to become recognized as men. Okay? Recognized as men. We are men. Was it Sojourner Truth who said, Ain't I a woman? Aren't I a human? Should not my problems be viewed from a human rights issue? Human rights problem? Regardless of my skin color or hair texture or the origin of my ancestors. Okay? If you notice, Michelle Alexander brought us up to date, said we have to go back and recommit Recommit to the dream, to Martin Luther King's dream. Recommit. That should be a social movement. It had been professed by others earlier, and Abraham Lincoln might have been one of them. It said we would never get out of the permanent underclass. The new Jim Crows attempted to put us in a new Underclass. More, uh, Abraham Lincoln was willing to send black folks out of the country to avoid emancipation, retropate people back to Africa or to Haiti or to the West Indies. Michelle Alexander brings it up to date that we still have an assault on our right to vote by being tagged with criminal uh, history, being labeled a felon, stop and frisk, disregard of Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable search and seizure. The new frontier, Ms. Alexander talked about, another new Jim Crow, immigration, the immigration law, that it needs more prisons, that if they get over the new fences that are built, we'll need new prisons to put them in. To stand your ground laws. Or furtherness of this attack. And it's all political. It's a political attack. Okay, and the immigration law, moving back to that, is targeted against Latino immigrants. That's the focus right now. But how long will it take for that to refocus on black immigrants, Jamaicans, Africans, Haitians, 
than me and you. Any person of any color coming from any country. They can't pass the paper the paper sack test. Anyone whose pigment is darker than a grocery bag. That's the two to one drop rule again. The new Jim Crow. Political, it's also economic. Michelle Alexander made mention of William Blackman's book right after the Civil War on the penal system. Blacks taken into the penal system was leased out to plantations. Well, they were also leased out to coal mines, which was a benefit to U.S. Steel in Pennsylvania, who had coal mines in Alabama and Mississippi and benefited from those leased prisons. Okay? Michelle Alexander challenged us. What do we do? What do we do? How do we stop the prison industrial systems, the feeder pipeline? Well, she mentioned one thing we have to do is maybe establish a new underground railroad. Underground railroad to help prisoners coming out of the system, to help aged out foster children coming out of the foster care system, because they're going to be targets as well. Those aged-out foster children are going to be the ones going to prison. They're the ones that are going to be homeless. What are they doing in your community? What are you doing in your community? What kind of coalitions have you set up? Have you got together with property owners to rent at reasonable cost individuals coming out of the prison system? aged out kids coming out of the foster care system? Have you talked to employers, convinced them to be willing to hire those individuals coming out of prison who are labeled as felons? Your politicians, local politicians, talked about opting out of the federal food stamp program. You know, here in my locality in Kansas City, the uh, City Council of Kansas City took out the box of their employment applications. Are you a felon? Mark this box, yes or no. That question and box has been removed from an application. What are they doing in your community? The notion that it takes a nation or a village to raise a child the Underground Railroad addressed that proverb. What are they doing in your community to provide decent shelter, playgrounds, recreation, Little League baseball, Little League football, education systems? Is that going on in your community? 
the responsibility is on us now. What's your church doing? Are you involved in your church? So much to be done. As Michelle Alexander pointed out, we're up against it. We're up against it. The Supreme Court closed the door to the court system to battle discrimination. 600,000 people in New York City stopped and frisked. 80 to 90% people of color. And the Supreme Court says, in spite of that stat, well, you have to prove conscious intent to discriminate. Conscious intent to discriminate. 600,000 people stopped, 90% African American or Latino. Oh, no, you got to have conscious intent. Are you voting? And we're not talking about just in uh, national campaigns, but are you voting for your school board, PTA, city councilman, alderman, county alderman? got to exercise our voting rights on all levels, all levels. Are we teaching our children about their civil duties? What's expected of them? Because you see, this society does owe you something as long as you participate. Okay? They do owe you something as long as you participate and participate in the right way. Are you letting our kids know? Are you teaching your kids about civil duties? They come up with a felony. They'll be stripped of their ability to do jury duty, which is probably the first and foremost civil duty most people perform. Jury duty is important. Look what happened in the Zimmerman trial, Trayvon Martin situation. So the civil duty is important. They're trying to take democracy away where it is not everybody votes. Somehow turned it around into a republic where that right to vote, where only the citizens are represented. Now they have a way to disenfranchise citizens in this country. Various ways. And of course, if you're not represented, you have no say in the government. You don't have no say in what's going on. process probably started at the inception of this country. Recall that no one could vote, only a landowner could vote. 
regular Joe Bo citizen had not the right to vote. Only the landowner could vote. And there are principles and principalities at work in this country to get us back to that era. That's why the move is so strong in this country to strip people of their voting rights. Just here recently, a month or so ago, shipping away the 1965 Civil Rights Bill, Voters' Rights Bill. If you're not represented, then the laws can be made against you. The only way you can protect yourself from unjust laws is to be a participant in the process. And the first participation is to vote. If not, you're back in slavery under another name, by another name. He's a felon. He's a schizophrenic. He's not a legal citizen. He's an immigrant. You don't have a driver's license. You can't vote. Your vote can be taken away from you for non-violent crimes. Your right to operate a motor vehicle. Ida B. Wells, did you hear? Murder, political murder, was being committed. For what? To control the vote. To intimidate people wanting to be vote. All under the auspices of defending womanhood. That was the excuse for the lynchings. But the purpose was to keep people out of the voting booth. Keep people out of the voting booth. Lynchings started falling out of favor. So they started the testing. A lot going on, folks, in this country today. Ida B. Wells had her friends killed. Because they were too competitive. A lot of jealousy going on back in the day. Well, I hope you've enjoyed uh, those presentations um, that we presented you. Um, We have other previous shows where we had the young lady there in Atlanta who talked the gunman into surrender that was getting ready to go in and shoot up a, a school and of 800, she probably saved a good number of those lives. 
going into that situation. Again, if you hook up with uh, Leslie Gist, L-E-S-L-E-Y-G-I-S-T on Facebook, you'll be uh, kept abreast of what's going on with that young lady. We also um, featured the Russell Simmons Apology for the Harriet Tubman sex tape um, where he claimed uh, that he offered an apology to her descendants that was accepted. However, we had a guest on who read a letter uh, from a direct descendant of Harriet Tubman that did not agree with his assessment. And we understand now that Russell Simmons wants to make a new film about Harriet um, to tell the true story of her efforts, her many, many efforts to lead people from slavery to freedom. And by the way, uh, President Obama called uh, a young lady there in uh, Atlanta to thank her for her bravery and uh, her coolness in talking that potential shooter down into surrender, saving the lives of a number of school children there in that Atlanta school. So I hope you can join us uh, this Thursday for another program. And by the way, this program will be archived at www. BlackHistoryUniversity.com And this Thursday we'll be talking with a guest from the One Voice Project. That's a project that is sponsored by Felicia Rashad. So I'm looking forward to uh, finding out more about the One Voice Project. And uh, our guest will be here Uh, this Thursday at www.blogtalkradio.com backslash the gifts of freedom. Um, This One Voice Project uh, is doing a play. Uh, It's going to be done all over the world at the same time. It's done simultaneously. The play is Four Little Girls. Again, it will be presented simultaneously all over the world at the same time. Four Little Girls. And, of course, that's the story of the four girls that were bombed in Sunday school in Birmingham, Alabama, here after known as Bombingham, Alabama. Quite a project, and it's going to be quite a feat pull that off. So, see you come Thursday. Again, my name is Preston Washington. I thank you for joining us, and good night to all.